having grown up in what I am terming the therapeutic age or the culture of counseling, I've been introduced to some very important lessons for life. Things like everyone has issues or it's almost always helpful to talk to someone you trust. I've learned that psychologists cannot prescribe medicine, but psychiatrists can. I've also learned that if you would like to see a particular action or behavior from someone, rather than state it negatively, it's more helpful to state it positively. So rather than trying to stop someone from doing something, you give them something to do. For instance, rather than don't drink too much, say, have one or two drinks, depending on your size. Rather than don't get your information on COVID from QAnon, say, get your information on COVID from the CDC. I've heard this advice about stating things positively so much that it actually has come to bother me a lot of times when I'm reading strict scripture because there are so many don'ts in scripture. Think about the Ten Commandments. Yes, there are some that are stated positively. Keep the Sabbath, honor your mother and father, but also there are a lot of negatives. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Okay, but what shall I do? Again, the commandments that are stated positively give us something to do, something positive to work with, which is why I am thankful for this morning's text from Peter. Peter could have attempted to prohibit us from specific behavior, behaviors, do not be proud or be anxious for nothing, which is just a fancier way of saying don't be anxious. But if that is the instruction, what do you do when you have those feelings? It doesn't really help to say don't feel this way or don't think about that. Instead, Peter gives us positives to do that will lead us to the outcomes that he hopes for us. Ultimately, Peter wants us to take our focus from ourselves and our worries and turn our focus instead onto God and helping others. So Peter encourages us to contemplate God's strength and love in order that we might experience peace that allows us to love our neighbors. Peter gives us that first action item in the beginning of verse 6, humble yourselves. Now, initially, that struck me as pretty similar to don't be proud. Humble yourselves. I mean, how do you make yourself humble? Isn't a significant part of being humble not really thinking about yourself? I have an inclination that Peter would say, yes, that is often an important part of uh, humility. And that's why he points instead our focus to God. Humble yourselves 
under God's mighty hand, that God may lift you up in due time. I don't think when Peter talks about under God's mighty hand, I don't think that Peter means that we should be cowering under the threat of God's punishment. I think instead, Peter wants us to contemplate, again, like I was saying with the kids, God's immense power and strength and wisdom in order that we might be filled in awe about the mighty hand of God. In fact, many of the commentaries I read pointed out that the mighty hand of God, that specific image, was an image referred to often in our Hebrew scriptures, and we actually heard it in some of our psalms. And frequently, it was connected specifically to God freeing the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, we heard, which is the, the event known as the Exodus. And we heard that in our uh, Hebrew First Testament passage in Deuteronomy when Moses is, is giving the people instructions about what to do when they move into the promised land. And uh, part of that is bringing the first fruits to God, uh, remembering that our ancestor was a wandering Aramean that went down into Egypt with just a few people, lived there, became a great nation, but the Egyptians mistreated and put them into slavery even. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So, verse 8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror for the Egyptians, and miraculous signs and wonders, and brought us to this place. Over and over again, the, the exodus, that great event is, is remembered, and it always is almost always accompanied with this image of, with God's mighty hand, he led us out of slavery. And notice that what remembering this amazing act of God will do for those who are in the promised land. It will give them such a sense of security that they will be willing to bring forth the very first fruits, the very beginning of their crops and, and their wealth. They will bring the first fruits of their work to God and be willing to share them, share what they have even with immigrants and strangers. Verses uh, 10 and 11 especially. Now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down, and you and the Levites, who were the priests, and the aliens, the strangers, the immigrants among you, and you shall Rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given to you and your household. For the Hebrew people who are our elders in faith, the Exodus was the ultimate expression of God's mighty power, other than maybe the act of creation itself. For us, we believe in the additional expression of God's mighty power, 
God's mighty hand at work in raising Jesus from death to new life and thereby conquering our greatest enemy, death. When we truly contemplate, truly consider the almighty power and strength of God expressed in the acts of creation and salvation, our humility will take care of itself. And our reverence for God becomes even more humbling when we contemplate that the truth that God's power and strength are at work on our behalf, not just for the world as an abstract concept, on our behalf. Again, verses are verses for this morning from First Peter. Humble yourselves before God under God's mighty hand that God may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on God because God cares for you. Because God cares for you. The same hand that formed the mountains and the seas and all of creation will salvage our world. And the same mighty hand that raised Jesus from death to new life will raise us up as well. Knowing this allows us to live out Peter's second action item, which is cast all your anxiety on God. As I, again, as I was saying with the kids, the, <clears throat> the original Greek is far more emphatic about this than most of the English translations uh, reveal. First, it begins with the, the first part, building up all of your cares, all of your anxieties, all of your burdens, all of them throw onto God. Cast them, heave them onto God. This very much invites us to active participation. In our gospel passage, Jesus also encourages followers to unburden ourselves from anxiety <clears throat> and worry. Again, for a very similar reason. Look at, look at all of creation, the birds and, and the, the grass. All of these things, aren't you worth more than that? Yes, Jesus is saying, you are worth more than that. God loves you even more than that. So if God does all these amazing things for the rest of creation, <clears throat> God will certainly do that and more for you, for us. Peter takes that beautiful lesson that he learned from God and gives us something to do with it, to help take all those worries, take those fears, and throw them on God, cast them out from yourself onto God. Almighty God loves us and will take care of us. <clears throat> the difficult part in all of this is that we won't experience the fullness of God's mighty hand lifting us up until the next life. We get a, a, a glimpse of that, we hear a little of that, uh, in Peter's 
talking about humble yourselves under God's almighty hand that God may lift you up in due time at the right time. And the word kairos is sort of this uh, more experiential understanding of time rather than a sequential. As our judicial system in this country continues to prove almost daily we are far from justice. And as our legislative system proves to us often, we are far from acting to truly repair the damage that we have done to our world. So Scott Knight, McKnight, an American theologian, tries to prepare us. He writes, Peter is drawing on Psalm 55, where the psalmist expresses confidence that God will never permit the righteous, never permit the righteous to be moved and will eventually bring evildoers to justice. Peter exhorts us, his churches, to express a similar confidence in God's justice by turning over their fears and worries to God They express their trust in him and rely on God to bring about vindication and justice. At the same time, when Peter promises that God will lift you up, it will not do to apply this to our world by suggesting it includes some kind of job promotion that a Christian sees as a reward for faithfulness. What Peter has in mind is final vindication at the end of history not a present reward. We cannot transform the notion of final day into any day. For Peter does not, nor do the other writers of the New Testament, believe that there is any guarantee that current conditions will necessarily improve because one is a Christian. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Waiting on God's timing is crucial. At the same time, McKnight affirms that we have reason to hope in a way that gives us strength for each day, even because of this. This is not about simply waiting until something happens. It's about actively participating in doing something now. And he writes, one of the most ennobling features of this text is that God who called us to his eternal glory is indeed a God of grace. No matter what God has called us to do, whether that means living victoriously in some modern Christianized culture or living in the heat of suffering, as the God of grace, God will bring us to the end he desires. We do not have to earn that final state because as the God of grace, God has willed that it be ours. We do not have to worry about things because, as the God of grace, God has promised us eternal glory. And so Peter encourages us to contemplate the mighty hand of God, the mighty hand of the God of creation, and to unload all of our burdens on the God of salvation that we might experience peace. Several years ago, a family that we know 
experienced a profound tragedy. Uh, One of their children, who was just starting out in college, suffered a freak head injury. And this young man survived, but he lost uh, a significant amount of brain function that more than likely will not ever fully recover. The parents face an ongoing relationship with their son that holds a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And I once asked the dad, what gets him through each day? And he gave a response that has stuck with me because of how powerful it was for him in expressing it and the way in which, again, it, 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 it gave him something to help him through to live with grief and anxiety. He told me that he prays, which first of all was a, a not particularly expected from this person, that he prays in a very specific way, though. He imagines literally images it in his mind being at the foot of the cross with Jesus still on it. He then imagines taking all of the burdens that he's feeling off of his own back and laying them at the feet of Jesus on the cross, laying them there and walking away. He knows that he literally cannot bear these things alone. And that Jesus bears all suffering, not only with us, but often even for us. I have a great deal, (laughs) a great deal of anxiety about the future of our country, the immediate future especially, and our world longer term. And I know that many of us here uh, bear, at times, almost overwhelming, if not truly overwhelming, anxiety. Peter bids us throw it all onto God. Lay it at the feet of Jesus on the cross. Hear these poignant and true words from the writer Frederick Buechner. Anxiety and fear are what we know best in this century of ours. He was writing about the previous century, but it's pretty applicable for today too, especially as you hear uh, what he goes on. Uh, Anxiety and fear is what we know best. Wars and rumors of wars from civilization itself to what seemed the most unalterable values of the past, everything is threatened or already in ruins. Again, think about that. Even previously he was writing, think of how much more true it is that even the, what seemed to be the most unalterable values of our society is threatened or already in ruins. We have heard so much tragic news that when the news is good, we cannot hear it. But the proclamation of the gospel is that all is well. And as a Christian, I say this not with the easy optimism of one who has never known a time when all is not well. 
but as one who has faced the cross in all its obscenity as well as all its glory, who has known one way or another what it is to live separated from God. In the end, his will, not ours, is done. Love is the victor. Death is not the end. The end is life. His life and our lives through him, in him. Existence has greater depths of beauty, mystery, and benediction than the wildest visionary has ever dared to dream. Christ our Lord has risen. Contemplate the mighty strength of God in creation and salvation. Throw all your anxiousness at the feet of the cross of Christ because God cares for us. Thanks be to God.